Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 398 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to talk all things AEW and NXT as we close in on the 400th episode of this damn podcast. That's right, there is a ton still ahead in the world of getting over across the next couple of days. As I mentioned, this is episode 398 on Saturday night. As soon as the premium live event goes off the air, we will have episode 399, your WWE Royal Rumble instant analysis. And then next Tuesday, we will have episode 400 of Getting Over, the WWE Fallout edition from Royal Rumble, and of course the Raw after the Royal Rumble, as well as the debut of a new sound here on Getting Over. Most of the equipment, not all, but most of the equipment that you, our listeners, our Getting Over heads, generously uh, funded for us has been acquired, and we will be able to debut that new sound for you on Tuesday. Extremely excited to reach episode 400 and to get this new equipment in the home office so that this show can sound just that much better. But today we are here to talk AEW and NXT, and we are not going to waste a lot of time getting to it. So allow me to do what we've done for the vast majority of these 398 episodes. Start the show by reminding you that this podcast is all about Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review for us. And if you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights. You get to vote in our polls this week, our pre-show and post-show poll for the Royal Rumble. And you can join us for our Royal Rumble pre-show live on Twitter Spaces Saturday night before WWE's first pay-per-view of 2023 begins. So again, every reason in the world to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Now, on today's show, we are talking AEW and NXT. We will kick things off with AEW, so don't forget, we do have timestamps in our episode description. If for some reason you only want to listen to our takes about AEW or NXT, or you hear one and you're coming back to the show later, you want to jump to the other Hit the description. You can find the timestamps. You can jump around. But as always, I do hope you listen to the entire show. Let's kick things off with AEW, mostly because Warner this week decided to relent on their Jay Briscoe ban, likely due to pressure from AEW, Ring of Honor fans, and Tony Khan himself. And good for them all for making it happen. That allowed AEW to honor Jay on this week's Dynamite after not being able to honor him last week. And they were able to air a really sweet, touching video package in the first hour of the show. They followed that up with a memorial match in the main event of Dynamite. We had Mark Briscoe, of course, Jay's brother, going head-to-head with Jay Lethal, one of his best friends. Of course, they were all in Ring of Honor together for an extremely long time. ROH commentary uh, joined Excalibur for this match with uh, Tony Schiavone and Taz taking a back seat. Mark came out with both of the Briscoes tag team titles, and both guys understandably teared up right at the bell. Mark hit a great running blockbuster off the apron and a huge elbow drop off the top 
through the timekeeper's table at ringside. He avoided lethal injection and countered with a huge lariat, following with the J-Driller, of course his brother's finisher, as he pointed to this guy during the cover for the 1-2-3 and the victory. Mark said, I love you into the camera. After the bell, the locker room came out to cheer on the ramp. There was an honorary image that got posted on the big screen. And the last two minutes of the show were Mark kind of, you know, celebrating his brother, not so much celebrating the match win, but celebrating uh, commentary, honoring Jay. Some really touching words that were said before Mark walked up to the ramp. He got huge hugs from a bunch of the guys and, of course, Tony Khan as well. It was just a really touching moment. It was a good way to honor Jay uh, with a great match, a walk-off moment, and AEW and Ring of Honor being able to provide that a week after they weren't able to. Uh, the fact that Mark got to do it, perhaps he wouldn't have been on last week's show, even if Warner would have allowed him to be given the proximity to the event actually happening. So, you know, certainly it wasn't a positive that they had to delay it a week for those reasons. But if it did lead to Mark being able to wrestle and honor his brother in that way, then perhaps that's a silver lining, you know, in the entire thing. Um, but AEW has done a, certainly a fantastic job uh, honoring uh, Jay Briscoe the best that they could two weeks ago, and then certainly a very good job uh, this week. And that special uh, that was taped after last week's Dynamite is now released uh, on different platforms. I believe the YouTube, uh, Honor Club, all that type of stuff. I have not gotten an opportunity to watch it yet, but I certainly hope uh, that everyone does. So, you know, with that, we're going to go ahead and talk about the rest of AEW Dynamite and Rampage this week. And as I said, we'll cover NXT in the back half of the show. So on Rampage, we had Brian Cage against Willie Mack. This was a dark match on Rampage just to give Cage a win before Dynamite. I hate that AEW does that. Like either put the guy on TV consistently or don't and just put him in the match. You do that with so many other people. Throwing a shitty match on Rampage that you're forcing me to watch instead of something that actually matters, that's not a positive. That's not, that's not, you're not all of a sudden building Brian Cage up because he beats Willie Mack, who is not an AEW superstar wrestler. He's a Ring of Honor guy and he's never on TV anyway. Like it doesn't do anything for anyone. Anyway, Cage hit a Uranagi on the apron. He won with the drill claw. These were a couple big meaty men, absolutely, but the match was awful. So it does not get a sound drop. Slow, plotting, boring, just nothing worth watching. Now on Dynamite, we had Brian Danielson against Cage. That was the standard match as Danielson runs the third, fourth, fifth iteration of the MJF gauntlet to be able to fight him in a match. Brian got his ass thrown all around the ring at the onset. He ate a shoulder breaker plus a vertical suplex from the apron inside after the commercial break. He also ate a buckle bomb uh, botched into the ropes and then rolled into a regular powerbomb with Danielson countering a third powerbomb attempt into a rollover for the pinfall win. Cage continued attacking after the bell with a really interesting, like, lifted, gripping type of DDT. And the timekeeper just kept ringing the bell ad nauseum, just nonstop. Uh, MJF came down without his music, threw the bell away, grabbed a chair so that Cage could wrap it around Brian's arm and ram him into the post. MJF then beat him further in the ring, and he was going to stomp his arm in a chair off the ropes when Konosuke Takeshka made the save. And then later in the training room, Brian was diagnosed with something that was so overly complicated. I didn't even want to rewind it to like hear what he said. Like just say it's a labrum tear or something like that. Something very simple. It got all really convoluted, uh, but he refused to hear it anyway. So it didn't really matter. He screamed he would wrestle no matter what, expose MJF as a fraud and win the AEW title. Now, look, Brian does not need to get put over given his talent level, career success, all that stuff. 
But it was kind of ridiculous for him to take such a significant beatdown from Cage in the match and barely win by the skin of his teeth on a pinning combination, knowing they were going to do the post-match beatdown. That's the type of booking you do for someone like, I don't know, Mustafa Ali, right? Where they're just getting their ass kicked, but they get it out of the way at the very end. They luck into a pinning combination. Brian Danielson is one of the best wrestlers in the entire world. He doesn't need to luck into a pinning combination against Brian Cage. It was almost too much of a suspension of like kayfabe disbelief, if that even makes sense. Given we all know Danielson's talent level is far beyond squeaking out a win and surviving. His promo afterward was awesome and it saved a lot of the booking. So that was a positive to the entire thing. I just didn't really like the way the match was laid out. Needed a different agent or Brian needs to be less giving and realize that this is the number one contender for the AEW title. He shouldn't be looking like that against Brian Cage. Again, because of what they were doing in the post-match. That's the reason beyond the normal reason why it wasn't necessary. Uh, MJF backstage, he made a Holocaust reference and then told Takeshka to stay out of his business or face consequences. He called Brian obsessed, saying he should have enough with his family, his Hall of Fame career, and his huge fan base, but he wants to take the one thing that makes MJF feel whole. MJF promised he'd move from physical pain to mental pain if Brian didn't stop. He also told Danielson that he would fight Timothy Thatcher next week. Solid promo from MJF, save for the first part. Uh, Thatcher as the next opponent. I mean, look, when MJF does these gauntlets, which he does all the time, there's always an outside person that comes in. So this remains completely repetitive with the ones that have come before it. That said, if you're going to do this every single time, then you might as well do it the exact same way, right? Uh, Danielson Thatcher, it's going to be an absolute banger. It's really smart booking because it's going to concentrate on the injured shoulder because they're going to do a technical wrestling match. So Thatcher will be able to lean on it, cause Brian a lot of pain. He'll be able to sell that eventually, probably going into the Ironman match. It makes a lot of sense for Thatcher to be the opponent this time. It's just not only are they doing the gauntlet again, they're doing another outside opponent as the middle person in the gauntlet. And, you know, at some point, MJF, especially if he's going to have a long title reign, there's going to have to be another type of gimmick to get a match with him other than going through a number of people in succession to eventually end up fighting him. Hangman Page backstage was called out by Renee Paquette for being vague last week in his answers, which is what I pointed out on last week's show, how none of it made any sense. Page noted that they'll be in Dayton next week, so he would like to knock out John Moxley in Ohio. Wheeler Yuta came up accepting on Mox's behalf and challenged Hangman himself on Rampage. Page then threatened to knock him out. Renee was completely unaffected by a guy wanting to concuss her husband a second time, didn't seem to care. Uh, it was fine. The storyline's obvious. I'm legitimately surprised it's not being saved until the pay-per-view. It's a really big match. Maybe what they do next week is a time limit draw and then save the rubber match for Revolution. That's at least the way I would book it if I wanted to do a match on TV before paying it off. On Rampage, Darby Allen cut a tape promo about being a fighting champion as the TNT title holder. He said he's not done evening the score with House of Black, so he's putting the title on the line against Buddy Matthews. Now, I appreciate Darby trying to create reasoning for his booking. But while he's had some really good title matches since winning the TNT strap, the creative has literally been one random fighter after another. There's been zero storylines for one of the top fan favorites who just won the title back. And here, when he's saying I'm not done with House of Black, he's literally referring to a feud from August to make sense of a random match in January. August is the last time he fought a House of Black member one-on-one. 
So, I mean, it's so convoluted and it's not even convoluted. It's such a thin reasoning to have this match in the first place. It's like, okay, at least they gave one. So credit for that. But how about you just book him in a month long storyline with someone else and then go back to the Samoa Joe match, which obviously is what they wanted to do. So we go to Dynamite, Allen against Matthews. Buddy was on fire at the bell, hit a great flying Meteora into the apron. Darby came back with a coffin drop outside, and then he sold a right leg that he injured in Japan. The lights went out with Malachi Black and Brody King appearing at the base of the ramp. Ortiz ran down with a kendo stick, and Sting used his bat. That was enough, again, ancient Sting, just because he has a weapon. That's enough to chase Malachi Black and Brody King away. That and a chair with Ortiz. Uh, Matthews hit Allen with a Liger bomb out of the corner. Darby came back with a crucifix bomb. Darby ate a buckle bomb and stomp combo with Buddy honoring Seth Rollins. I thought it was really cool that he did that. He came back with a code red and countered into a scorpion death drop avalanche style off the ropes. Then Matthews was draped over the ropes. So Allen hit the coffin drop draping style to get the win. Exemplary match. The best of Darby's TNT title run this thus far, the second version of it. Again, the randomness of it all does detract because it's just good wrestling and nothing more. But it was still damn good wrestling. I went 4.25 stars and an A for this. Buddy is incredible. It's great to see him get shine on television for a change. I just wish it was in a real storyline where he could cut a promo and sink his teeth into it. And it's more than just, oh, here's a match of very good wrestling. After the Bell Samoa Joe appeared on the big screen to threaten Allen with the clear suggestion being a rubber match in the future, and it was later announced, I believe it's going to be a no-holds-barred match next week on Dynamite. I still don't understand why Joe is the main challenger for a title when he has the ROH TV strap. He just did it with Wardlow. Now he's doing it with Darby. And they're rematches after rematches after rematches. On top of everything else, AEW said we're not going to get rematches all the time. Either unify the straps or simply find someone else at this point. And I can't imagine Darby losing to Joe. So then Darby beats Joe twice. How does that make Joe look? I guess we'll find out next week. On Rampage, Daniel Garcia fought Action Andretti. We got a split leg moonsault and inverted fireman's carry neckbreaker from Andretti. Garcia then caught him flying with a palm strike and a sit out Uranagi. Andretti came back with a double jump tornado that only connected about 25%. And then a running shooting star press to get the upset the same way he beat Chris Jericho. There's a clear attempt to make Andretti here, like putting him over Jericho and now Garcia. It seems kind of random without a notable end goal, especially because he's still incredibly green and they barely give him any character time, but it was an entertaining match, all things considered. So then on Dynamite, we had Jericho and Sammy Guevara against Ricky Starks and Andretti. Starks taunted Jericho while tightrope walking. That led Guevara to jump out of his corner for a flying cutter in an absolutely sick spot, probably the spot of the week in AEW. Starks tripped tagging in, but hit a spear off a counter. Jericho rolled him up with a grab of the tights for a false finish. Starks answered with a Liger bomb. Jericho got knees up on Andretti's split leg moonsault. Starks eliminated Jericho into the post and then hit a Rochambeau at ringside. Andretti hit Guevara with a poison Rana and a hanging neckbreaker for a false finish. And then he went for another one when Sammy grabbed the ropes and Garcia dropped action in the head with the bat and the heels ultimately got the win in the match. And this was a fun enough start to the show, Jericho getting taken out with Garcia helping Guevara. That was a really good piece of heel booking, especially since Starks got over Jericho outside and Andretti was allowed to show out in the ring before taking the L. It also showed that Sammy and Daniel are working together and it seems like maybe they're gonna be forming a tag team. 
So all of that was really smart booking, putting all that together. Even though I'm exhausted by JAS, credit where it's due because these were two of the more entertaining matches across Rampage and Dynamite this week. On Dynamite, Tony Storm fought Ruby Soho. Ringwalk promos had Storm telling Soho she forgot she's not an original, while Soho claimed she's been bleeding and sweating with the best women's roster in the world. Then Tony Schiavone felt he needed to explain the entire original versus outsider angle, even though both wrestling in this match were technically outsiders. Big yawn from me. Anyway, Storm kicked out of no future, then sold a nose injury on a pump knee. She was just playing possum to lure Ruby into getting her neck snapped in the ropes. Storm followed with a hip attack and a tornado DDT. Britt Baker's music hit to interrupt a Storm Zero attempt. Soho clumsily caught Storm with Destination Unknown to get the win, and then she appeared really confused by everything after the bell. So this was originally set to be a triple threat match with the three, and I criticized that booking on Twitter immediately. That got some AEW diehards who just, I guess, search for people who retweet AEW, extremely upset because I pointed out that Storm Soho made plenty of sense as a singles match, but running a triple threat for no specific reason was silly. Now, whether Baker was actually injured or not, changing this match to singles was way more sensible for the story they are telling, given what Storm and Soraya did to Soho and Willow Nightingale recently. That needed to be a singles match. And then, if you want to develop it from there and go back to the Britt Baker part of it with Jamie Hayter, you bring them in. You don't just throw up a triple threat match for no reason whatsoever. So the result was not just a more sensible match from a booking standpoint, but also a better wrestling match than we would have otherwise seen. Plus, it allowed Baker to play into the finish and actually give them a reason to fight again, as opposed to forcing it without a real reason as it was in the initial booking. So I was right. You all were wrong. Nana, nana. And that's really all I'm going to say about that. But regarding the match, solid wrestling bell to bell. I like the booking to advance the story that they want to tell even if I am pretty tired of the originals versus outsider shit in AEW. On Dynamite, Adam Cole got a promo package for the second straight week. This one showed him training while saying he's not yet where he wants to be, but he will be soon. It's good to keep him relevant on TV, but again, with him appearing live in the ring and then not showing up live in front of the audience anymore, it's just a step back and you really want to keep the energy level and excitement for him going by putting him in front of the crowd, or maybe putting him on commentary. Get him out so people can cheer him. Don't just do the video packages, especially, again, because you already showed him live a couple weeks ago. On Dynamite, the acclaimed Billy Gunn and the Gun Club were in the planned family therapy session. The Guns complained that Billy was on the road their entire lives, and the run he's on with the acclaimed was supposed to be the run he should be on with them. Anthony Bowens called them pieces of shit, saying they had a chance to do this but didn't take advantage, so now they're jealous. The Guns said their faults as sons represent Billy's failures as a father, and they demanded a title match before walking out. This is really tough to critique because on one hand, I really enjoyed the back and forth between the five of them. But on the other, the therapist literally sat there jotting notes and not doing anything to make it an actual therapy segment. It was more like an airing of grievances on Festivus. So it didn't really deliver to its promise which I figured would be campy and funny given all the people involved. So sure, it set into further motion the title match, but we've been expecting that match to happen for months. And because we didn't get really the segment that I thought we were going to get, 
it was kind of disappointing at the same time. So some thumbs up, some thumbs down. Just not really what I expected. On Rampage, Jungle Boy fought Ethan Page. Jungle Boy got his leg on the rope to break a fall after eating a twist of fate, which is obviously Matt Hardy's move. Page and Hardy jawed all match when Matt walked over to JB outside. Hook entered. That distracted everyone. Page caught JB in a pinning combination, holding Matt's ponytail from behind his leverage. Matt slapped his hand away, thinking it was JB. So he reversed it into a one, two, three. Stokely Hathaway yelled at Hardy after the bell and Page demanded a tag team match on Dynamite and the crowd went mild. The match was mediocre. The booking was a shrug. On Dynamite, we had Jungle Hook against Page and Hardy. Matt went on a run with all his signatures, perhaps ready to put Jungle Boy away. When Page demanded a hot tag, JB immediately caught him with the snare trap. Page crawled over to the corner. Hook stopped Hardy from making a tag as Page tapped out with the faces getting the win. Look, the fans love Jungle Boy and Hook, and that's great. So they got a big pop, but it feels like they're just mired in purgatory right now. Neither of them are doing anything. I think Jungle Boy is probably waiting for Christian Cage's, whatever it is, shoulder arm to get healthy so that they can continue that story, which is completely on pause. Luchasaurus has completely disappeared. Hook has nothing to do with the FTW title. The Matt Hardy and Ethan Page, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that story has mostly been told on Dark. So even though I know pieces of it, I don't really care to see them on TV. So yeah, this was just absolutely nothing to me. On Rampage, Ortiz said Eddie Kingston used to be his best friend, but has lost his mind with the House of Black getting to him. Ortiz kept saying Eddie was gonna hit Julia Hart with a chair, which again, we discussed this last week. Anyone who actually watched the match and saw how things transpired knew he wasn't going to do that. He was just caught in the moment with the chair in the air. And I talked about this on our WWE show this week. I said, hey, wasn't it cool that on uh, Raw or SmackDown, whichever show, Roman Reigns proved that he watched the product and analyzed what happened before coming to a decision. This is like the opposite. This is treating Ortiz like he's an absolute moron who can't tell that a guy getting a chair and then a woman stepping in front of him doesn't mean that he was gonna hit her with the freaking chair. Yet, apparently he thinks that Eddie Kingston was going to do so despite them being really good friends and him knowing that Eddie probably wouldn't hit a woman with a chair. So Ortiz brought up Eddie's mom and dad and their mentor homicide. That angered Kingston. So he shoved the chair in Ortiz's ribs and stormed off. Because of what I just said about Ortiz coming off like a total idiot, this entire deal is just an eye roll. It makes no sense that they're feuding over something so stupid. And House of Black getting to them, maybe that's something, but what's what's the result? Is Ortiz gonna join House of Black as Kingston? Like, where are we going here? And then lastly on Rampage, Jade Cargill and Layla Gray fought the Vanity Sisters. Cargill won with Jaded. They have an entire women's roster in AEW with three hours of TV each week. And we have to get a Jade tag team match against a couple unsigned women with zero storyline and zero character implications. They're giving us this week on Rampage, Jamie Hayter against Emi Segura in a uh, women's eliminator match for the championship. That's an awesome television match. I'm not saying the title needs to be on the line or they need to have an eliminator or they need to have Jamie Hayter on every show. Just give us good wrestling. This was not good wrestling. It was not a good segment and it was an absolute total waste of time. Zero point zero. And I'll tell you what, even beyond that, it's been a long time now and you know, Jade flashes occasionally, but I'm at the point where 
Jade Cargill, for me, it's just not going to happen. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. So that's AEW this week. A lot of positives, really good wrestling, particularly on Dynamite. But from a storytelling standpoint, I did, as you can tell, have issues with a lot of what they are doing. I know they're trying to utilize a little time and and it's it's an in-between time before they start really going uh, full bore towards the booking for Revolution. But I mean, look, great wrestling on TV is fantastic. I'm going to enjoy it every single time. But from a wrestling television show, I need more than great wrestling. I want good storytelling. And I've said this about WWE too and NXT, which we're going to talk about in many weeks. Sometimes they give us really good storytelling, but there's not a lot of great wrestling. It has to be the happy balance. And those are the shows that pop me the most when you get really good storytelling and really good wrestling all confined in one, usually two hour show. So let's move to NXT. Overall, solid episode. Don't really have a general way to bring us into it because look, they're building for Vengeance Day, which is still two weeks out. Next week is the go-home show. But I will say this week, they did a lot of setting up for the go-home show. And that was appreciated after what have been a couple of overall rough weeks from a storytelling standpoint. There was a cold open on NXT showing Grayson Waller on his Instagram Live talking trash outside the Performance Center before storming inside and making a scene calling out Braun Breaker. It was also filmed by a handful of other NXT superstars and PC trainees. Braun took him down with an amateur wrestling tackle. They got separated. It was a really great piece of viral content that we actually tweeted about on our Twitter account Monday, and it definitely upped my interest in the rivalry. So later in the ring on the show, Waller called out Breaker while wearing a replica NXT title as the uncrowned champion. Braun charged out of the locker room. He shoved security aside as he got in the ring and form tackled Waller. They kept pushing off more guys at ringside when Breaker charged Waller, who stepped aside with Braun literally crashing through the middle of the barricade, puncturing a hole in it with his body. He didn't move at first. Officials checked his head and neck and the segment ended. I gotta say, they have totally rebounded from that horseshit match finish at New Year's Evil. This is a hot ass feud that has picked up massive momentum each of the last two weeks, but really this week. The spot in the barricade was extremely well executed, but both that segment and the viral stuff was absolutely nails. Given next week is the go-home show for Vengeance Day, it's gonna be curious to see how they wrap it all up. But what we've talked about on this podcast for the last year is Breaker has had one absolute shit feud after another for the majority of his title run. This is by far the best that he's had since the Dolph Ziggler feud, which was the road to WrestleMania last year. So kudos to NXT for it struggled initially, but getting this right. And as long as they deliver and there's a great payoff at Vengeance Day, then this is gonna be his best feud top to bottom since the Ziggler feud. Apollo Crews stepped into Carmelo Hayes' barbershop as promised. When Mello and Trick Williams walked in, they talked shit and realizing the series was 1-1, decided to go two out of three falls at Vengeance Day to settle it once and for all. Cruz then walked out without getting any work done, but look, this should be an absolute banger. It's also a de facto number one contendership, though I get NXT not wanting to announce that officially, given Stand and Deliver is still two months away. But it is strange because the first time they fought, it was supposed to be for a number one contendership, and it kind of wasn't, and they just kept the feud going, and now here they are in their third match, And it's still not for the official number one contendership, even though it really should be, even though Apollo Crews was Braun Breaker's last challenger. So 
It's a little bit messy here overall. I think the expectation, of course, is that Melo is going to win and beat Apollo, which is going to be a big career moment for him. And I am excited to see the match once we actually get it at Vengeance Day. JC Jane cut a promo backstage, turning on Gigi Dolan, saying she's been carrying her since the start and refused to let her keep herself, Jane, from the title. Dolan later said she was surprised but not shocked at what Jane said about her, calling JC a bad person. Gigi was ready to give her a piece of her mind later in the show. The entire thing kind of came out of nowhere and it felt like a complete setup for a two-on-one attack of Roxanne Perez. And this concluded in a championship summit in the main event of NXT. Booker T hosted. Jane said her kick was an accident, but reiterated that she carried Dolan and now she wishes she did it on purpose. Gigi called her insecure, saying that she used to vomit from nervousness before all of their matches. They really went at each other verbally here, with Roxy and Booker sitting in the middle, just kind of laughing the entire time. Perez said they deserved this because this is how they talk to the rest of the women in the locker room, and karma is a toxic bitch. Roxy assumed it would be a handicap match, but then sees, hey, this is actually going to be a real triple threat. Jane repeated a toxic saying. Gigi said toxic was the only thing that ever made her relevant. Then they got in each other's face, screaming, when suddenly they smiled, turned their heads, slammed Roxy's face into the table, and beat the shit out of her two-on-one with a double choke bomb through the table. Was this booking blatantly obvious? Of course. But it was easily the best character work and mic work that Jane and Dolan have done in NXT. Literally night and day from their boring scripted promos that I think I criticized as recently as last week. If they can actually speak and act like this consistently, their ceilings get raised considerably. Their work on this NXT episode was main roster caliber without question, and it also raised interest in the match itself. So kudos to them, kudos to NXT for booking it this way, but you can't have them do this and then go back next week to their scripted promo bullshit. If you do, then it's just going to be completely wasted. So hopefully they build on it and don't take a step back. We had a women's tag team championship match, Caden Carter and Katana Chance against Alba Fire. And that was it. It was supposed to be a two-on-one handicap match for the titles. One second after the bell rang, Sol Ruka's music hit and she jumped onto the ring apron with Fire, just kind of shrugging and accepting her as her partner. Ruka hit a split cutter in a nice spot. Alba threw Katana into the steel steps and then went on a run. Carter had a nice hot tag with her corner combo. Chance hit a draping double stomp before the champions combined for an assisted Alabama slam offensive move. Ruka tagged in with a springboard splash. Chance put Alba into the steps with a hurricanrana. Carter then caught Ruka with a seated senton slam and combined with Chance for the assisted, elevated 450 finisher to retain the titles by pinning the neophyte. Alba seethed, walking past Sol, and then Isla Dawn, who met her at the entrance ramp after the match. Well, this completely countered the expectation of Dawn showing up and teaming with Fire. And it was also another loss for Alba, though obviously she didn't take the fall. And it seems like the goal is to use this as a springboard for Fire to change her mind and go to the dark side with Dawn, rather than continue to fight against it. And that's fine storytelling. If it was not for the fact that Alba should be up on the main roster already. So forget the Royal Rumble. Now we eye the post-WrestleMania call-up as her potential move. Perhaps they team for six weeks and then fight at Stand and Deliver and end the entire thing. Also of note is this was another good win for the KCs. And that's important too, because they continue to be built up as strong women's tag team champions. I appreciated that. Ivy Nile and Tatum Paxley fought Fallon Henley and Kiana James in a tag team match. Backstage, James wanted to start the match. That angered Henley 
who gave Jensen a side eye before James changed her mind to play nice. Jensen also held her purse during the match. Paxley hit a nice springboard drop kick off the middle rope. Niall caught Henley in her choke with James saving her partner behind the referee's back, tripping Niall so Henley could hit a really strange shining wizard. And then she held Paxley's legs to prevent a pin breakup as the odd couple got the win. The guys tried to get the women to celebrate together after the bell. Jensen later informed Briggs and Henley that he got Shawn Michaels to give them a women's tag team title match. Rather than be excited, Henley was upset, feeling blindsided by the entire thing. Eventually, after the women's tag team title match I just mentioned, they accepted the match and that is now set. So the booking in the match was expected, but it was executed well and all four of the women looked good in the ring. It's nice to see how much improvement they've actually made. The title match though was ridiculous. This just continues to show how poorly booked the women's tag team division is across both the main roster and NXT. All it takes to get a title match is winning one random match. Even if the women's tag teams don't fight every week, I don't see why it's so hard to create three or four tag teams so that they're ready when opportunities present themselves. But these two, an odd couple who don't want to be together, beating Niall and Paxley, who aren't the number one contenders or weren't previously the number one contenders or anything like that, winning that match gets them a title shot? Absolutely ridiculous. New Day were clowning when Idris Sanofe and Malik Blade plus Schism all walked up wanting title matches. New Day said that they could do a tag team invitational with the winner being added to the triple threat, making it a fatal four-way at Vengeance Day. This just seems completely unnecessary. I'm guessing the goal is for whichever one of these teams wins the match next week to join the match and ultimately take the fall instead of New Day. That way there's a title change. The New Day tag team title run, to me, it's fallen flat. I'm not saying I don't like them on the show. It just isn't as interesting as Dolph Ziggler winning the NXT championship was. I would have much rather, just as an example, having Xavier Woods win the North American championship and going on a run like that than doing New Day in this spot. It just kind of feels contrived and it's not getting me excited them losing the straps in the Fatal 4-Way seems obvious. I don't think they're going to strap up New Day all the way through Stand and Deliver. I really think they're just on this to get a main roster tag team on the Vengeance Day show, given it's going to be held in Charlotte and they're selling tickets. By the way, I think the setup is like 6,000. They've sold like 4,500. So they're doing pretty good. Uh, will they sell out? I have absolutely no idea. Chase U had an award ceremony in the ring for Thea Hale. Andre Chase was singing her praises and said, motherfucker, which led to a funny, that's not PG chant from the crowd. I appreciated that. Uh, She got awarded for winning her first match last week and started speaking when JD McDonough interrupted being critical of her being honored for one win and calling them all losers. Then he questioned whether Duke Hudson was on their side saying he was dressed for a fight and Chase was dressed like a moron. Chase tore off his gown to reveal that he had ring gear underneath and he socked JD in the face ahead of a match. So we got Chase versus McDonough. Chase hit the stomps, avoided double inside, and landed a Canadian destroyer, but JD barely got his foot on the bottom rope. When he struggled to get to the top rope, JD banged into the ropes with Chase falling off and Hudson leaving the ringside area out of frustration. That distracted Chase, who immediately ate devil inside for the loss. Chase and Hale were both confused why Hudson left, and they couldn't really figure it out. Much later backstage, Chase chastised Hudson for walking out. He admitted to being frustrated, but explained the reason he left was because he charged straight into Shawn Michaels' office to get them put in the tag team invitational next week. He told Hudson to ask New Day, and New Day offered them a spot. So again, these guys, who are not even a tag team, and you have Chase, who just lost a match, 
getting added to a tag team invitational doesn't make any sense. Why do they deserve an opportunity? Why would you not put Brooks and Jensen in there or any of the other tag teams uh, from NXT? These guys being thrown there after a loss for Chase, it's just wild. I assumed the Chase U stuff would wear on me overall, but it continues to hit each week. The promo that JD cut tearing them all down was classic heel shit. We got storyline development with Hudson, and the match was extremely solid, JD and Chase. For as corny as the Chase U gimmick might be, Chase continues to prove that he has talent in the ring in addition to his character work. It was a great double segment aside from the tag team booking. The third part, like I said, was odd because there was no reason for it, but This is what I was talking about. If you just do a direct comparison to AEW, Darby Allen coming up with a really thin reason for why he's defending the title against Buddy Murphy, I almost called him Buddy Murphy, Buddy Matthews. Here, you have JD McDonough creating a direct reason for why Andre Chase wants to fight him. And they do it in the next segment. Is either great? Not necessarily. But if you're comparing the two, which one's better, which one makes more sense? This one made more sense. The booking of this match than just throwing together Darby Allen and Buddy Matthews. Wesley visited Dijak in his dark dungeon or whatever you want to call it. Dijak doubted that Wesley had the balls to show up and told him to just hand over the title, make it easy on himself. Lee stood up. He's dropped some Wu-Tang telling Dijak, protect your neck because he's defending the title at Vengeance Day. It was actually a strong kind of segment, but uh, you know what? I'm not going to repeat my Dijak complaints. I've said them every single week. Uh, Drew Gulak's trainees visited the Diamond Mine Dojo to help the Creed Brothers get in work ahead of their Indu share match. Gulak was angry with how some of them performed, so he stepped in to work with Julius Creed, who took him down hard and pissed off Gulak even more. And speaking of leading to matches, that led directly to a match. The Creed's against Gulak and Hank Walker. Julius had a standing shooting star press on Walker before Brutus followed with a standing moonsault on him. If you said to me that Brutus could do a standing moonsault, I never would have believed you. So credit to him for being able to do that. Brutus took Gulak off the ropes with a double underhook as Julius jumped over his shoulders for an assisted front slam. Brutus then pounced Gulak as he ran the ropes, but Walker caught Julius with a wheelbarrow seated slam in a shocking show of skill. Charlie Dempsey stared down Gulak late in the distraction with Gulak refusing to tag Walker out. That left him to the wolves as Julius hit a toss belly to belly, followed by the Brutus bomb for the Creed victory. After the bell, Julius admitted to Ivy that he's been a pain in the ass. Brutus praised her as well. They both thanked her for standing by their side the entire time as they were trying to find themselves again. Indusher entered with Jinder Mahal laying down the challenge for all four men next week now that they're all 100% and the guys let Ivy accept on their behalf. This was so much better than I expected. Walker has quickly improved in the ring and I wouldn't be surprised if he's getting legitimate one-on-one training by Gulak. The Creeds did indeed come off at the top of their game and reestablishing a strong relationship with Nile. That was important given there's no one else in Diamond Mine anymore. And even Indusher simply works better with Mahal as their stick man. I thought it was solid from top to bottom. Indy Hartwell fought Tiffany Stratton. This was even and well wrestled until Stratton sold a fake knee injury long enough to blindside Hartwell with a forearm. Then she hit a front roll fireman's carry plus a triple jump springboard moonsault. Some may know that as a best moonsault ever for the win. Stratton looked fantastic here. Clearly her time away was not just recovering from surgery, but improving in the ring as well. Indy being so easily duped was kind of dumb babyface shit, but it was better than her losing outright. Curious to see whether they get her in the Royal Rumble this Saturday. 
Cora Jade backstage agreed that Lyra Valkyria will be an integral part of the women's division, but she clarified that she's not better, nor will she ever be better than her. While Cora was talking, Vic Joseph informed Mackenzie Mitchell on her earpiece that shit was going down in the NXT parking lot. Nikita Lyons was shown on the pavement selling a knee injury as a car drove off with Indy coming to her aid. And it's to the point that these wrestlers, they need to begin filing personal injury lawsuits against WWE for not having security in the NXT parking lot. It's a known hazard. No one is doing anything about it. That's a dangerous work environment. And I think they have a lawsuit on their hands. That's all I'm saying. In all seriousness, though, Lyons announced that she has a torn ACL and meniscus. So she's going to be out approximately nine months. And this was used to write her off TV. This is the second knee injury that she suffered. I'm not sure if it's the same knee as the first one. She came back faster than expected off the first one. And generally, if you have a ligament tear or sprain or something like that, and you come back quick, a tear can happen. And that's what happened here. But again, I don't know whether it's the same knee or a different knee. Wendy Chu fought Electra Lopez. This was supposed to be a lesson from Lopez to Valentina Ferois, who joined her at ringside. Electra threw Wendy's body pillow, but missed and hit Booker T on commentary. I thought that was really funny. Uh, Lopez hit a swinging Uranagi. Chu came back with her nap time dive. Electra then grabbed brass knuckles out of her pants. Valentina tried to tell the referee about the brass knuckles, but instead of helping Chu, she distracted the referee as Electra punched Wendy in the face and got the win. Backstage, Valentina said she could not go on cheating, so Electra told her to keep her friends while she would keep winning. It was such a dumb babyface move by Ferois. Like, I would have been critical of Lopez beating Chu, who's been booked really well, had it not been for the obvious blatant cheating. This just wasn't really much of anything. Tony D'Angelo and Stax entered an Italian restaurant in the evening, except it was broad daylight outside. Stax said he wanted to take down a big challenger, and they saluted. NXT has a major issue with restaurant settings. This is the second or third time they've done a segment at a bar or restaurant or something like that and screwed up something obvious like the time of day or location. Fallon Henley's bar is supposed to be out in the sticks and they open the door and you can tell it's in the middle of the city. Here, they're supposed to be going to an Italian restaurant for dinner and it's broad daylight, not the evening, not the sun setting, bright daylight coming through the door. Like, I get it. Like, it's the third brand, whatever. Film in the evening or don't show them walking in. Show the, show the other angle of them walking in. It, come on, you got to do better. And lastly, Stevie Turner was supposed to show up to a backstage interview. Instead, she was on her streaming set, ignoring Mackenzie Mitchell's questions so she could answer the same questions from her followers. Stevie clearly has a lot of confidence in delivery. There's something about the gimmick to me that's just a little off. Maybe it's going to work better in person when she starts wrestling. We'll find out about that supposedly next week when she makes her debut. So NXT this week, like I said, really strong from a storyline standpoint, not as much in ring. We did have the really good tag team match, Creed Brothers against Gulak and Walker. And I certainly like the women's tag team match uh, for the titles that we got as well. But, you know, nothing that was going to make you say, holy shit, you need to go see that match. It was really, in many ways, the opposite of what we got from AEW Dynamite, which was exceptionally strong in the ring and not that great from a storytelling standpoint. So that's the breakdown of AEW and NXT this week, episode 398, coming to a close on the way out. We're going to talk about the schedule momentarily, but let me first remind you that getting over this podcast is all about Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, drop a five-star rating on Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review, let everyone know why you listen to the show, tell them why they should subscribe. And if you do, we will read it live right here on the podcast. 
Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, and pre- and post-show polls for the Royal Rumble this coming Saturday. You're going to want to vote in those. That way your voice is heard for our Royal Rumble Instant Analysis podcast. And we will be doing a Royal Rumble live pre-show on Twitter Spaces before WWE's first premium live event of 2023. Speaking of the podcast schedule, one more reminder before we get out of here, that Royal Rumble Instant Analysis podcast on Saturday night will be episode 399, which means next Tuesday, our WWE show will be episode 400, where we debut a new sound with new equipment that you all contributed to the show. I appreciate all of you so much again for doing that. And of course, same bat time, same bat channel. Next Thursday, we will talk AEW and NXT. For NXT, it will be the go-home show for Vengeance Day. Thank you all once again for listening. That is all the Silver King has for you today. At this point, it is time for me to sign off. So I will leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. Thank you.